Let's turn in the Word of God now to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel according to Mark, the second of the Gospels. It's reading from the end of chapter 4, from verse 35 through to uh, chapter 5 and verse 20. We're on page 1012 in our church Bibles. Before we read, let me just... uh, say that what we're about to read is one of the most dramatic passages that we see in the whole Bible. It is, it is a, a white-knuckle roller coaster ride in some ways, so make sure you're strapped in as we hear God's word this morning. Mark 4, verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go across to the other side, that is the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one, no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he, Jesus, was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen 
fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Praise be to God for his word. I want us this morning, brothers and sisters, to look particularly at verse 15 in this chapter as our eventual focus. We'll get there a little later on, but let's read verse 15. And they, that is the people of that land, came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. We're going through Mark's gospel this autumn in eight big strides. We're trying to cover the whole of this gospel in the time that we have. And we are looking at what? We are looking at the person and the power and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are looking at the great things that Jesus did to change people's lives. But in all the Gospels, there is no narrative more powerful, more dramatic, more striking, perhaps in some ways more frightening, more overwhelming than the one we've just read. Here is a man who is at the outer limits of what we can call humanity, if he even seems to remain human at all. He is possessed by a great legion of evil spirits, of demons. He is utterly, fully under the control of evil. And the Lord Jesus is the one who comes to him and gloriously, wonderfully, and completely delivers this man from the evil which possessed him. To the point where we see this man in verse 15, amazingly restored, clothed and in his right mind. Now let's go straight into this passage. And I want to see this passage this morning under three D's. D somehow feels an appropriate letter for the points in this passage this morning. And the first D is for darkness. Here is a scene of dismal, dismal darkness. Now, I don't think I've got a particularly visual mind. 
I think more in terms of numbers and symbols and letters than I perhaps do in pictures. But I, when I read this passage and the other equivalent passages in Mark and in Matthew and in Luke, I always sense the darkness. As I see Jesus and his disciples arriving in this land, there are heavy black clouds. There's a slate gray sea. There's a dark, craggy, forbidding, foreboding landscape. A cold, chill, biting wind is getting up. A steady drizzle is blowing into my eyes. The rocks and the tombs are dark gray. The landscape, the whole scene, is bleak, gloomy, dismal, harsh, menacing. You feel like you've gone through the black gate into the very heart of the land of Mordor. There are no birds singing. There are no flowers growing. There are no shafts of warm sunlight. Not then, not ever. There are no colors to enjoy. Even the grass that may grow there, if it grows, is like the grass in Dorothy's Kansas in The Wizard of Oz. It's gray. It's not green. It's a dark, dark scene. Now that's only my imagination. And you might say, you've got no right to preach your own imagination. And you're right there. I won't preach my own imagination. But maybe my imagination is a biblically informed and biblically conditioned imagination. But let's leave imagination completely behind now and go on to facts. What do we find here? We find that in verse 1, Jesus and his disciples have come to the other side of the lake. The other side of the lake. They've come to the country of the Gerasenes. And they've come, as we've read, through a violent storm in order to get there. And now, a bit like the weather this October, they've gone through cold fronts and troughs and storms and cyclones and typhoons and hurricanes. And they are now in, as it were, some very chill, dark place. They feel very far from home, though they're no more than maybe about nine or ten miles from where they set sail from. But this is the point. This is their first, this is the disciples' first visit with Jesus into Gentile territory. What does that mean? They are outside of Israel. They're in the country of the Gerasenes, sometimes called the Gadarenes or even the Gergesenes in different versions, part of what was called the Decapolis. Now, why is this place they have gone to as it is? Why is it so horribly bleak and grim? What we have in the first part of this narrative, really, I suppose, for the first 13 verses of chapter 5, what we have here is a picture, a graphic, visual, striking picture of the world as it is without the light and life of God. This is a picture of our world without the loving, saving, life-giving, hope-inducing knowledge and enjoyment of the true God of the Bible, of the God of Israel. 
What does the whole Bible tell us? What does the Old Testament tell us? It tells us that the people of Israel were chosen by God to be a light to the nations. They were the one people on earth whom God visited and gave his law to, his teaching to, his worship. They were the people who, who knew him, the people he revealed himself to. And Israel is often referred to in the Old Testament as a pleasant land, a beautiful land, a land of light, a land of milk and honey, a land where the Lord was with his people. But outside that land, outside that land, darkness covered the earth and thick darkness covered the people. What do we see in this passage What is this place of the uh, Gadarenes uh, actually like, or the Gerasenes? It's a place minus the knowledge of God. It's a place where ignorance and fear and evil dwell and spread. It's a place full of tombs, as we've read. It's a place associated with death. And let me say this. How do we apply this today? How can we possibly apply such a strange, outlandish, haunting, horrible passage to ourselves today? Well, I'll tell you, here is one way. When the light of the true knowledge of the one God is extinguished from a people, then places and peoples and cultures and civilizations will gradually, ever so gradually, deteriorate until ultimately, ultimately, they come to resemble the scene that we have here. And all the wonderful things of human civilization that we all enjoy so much, human warmth and decency and kindness and laughter, and generosity, and color, and friendship. They start to drain away and drain out of a people and fade into a deathly pallor. Today, do we live in a country, my friends, where there is no warmth, no decency, no kindness, no laughter, no color? No, we don't. We have those things. We still have those things in a considerable measure. There is more than a residue of human warmth and kindness and laughter and joy found among people and communities here in this city of London, throughout our land, and indeed throughout Europe. They're still here. They're still here. But, and this is a really important but this morning, Are there not clear signs that these blessings and benefits, that this civilization, Western civilization, British civilization, European civilization, American civilization, that these blessings and benefits are now not as full or widespread as they once were? We see ever more anger, ugliness, confusion, we see ever-mounting depression and uncertainty 
and fear in our society, don't we? More and more. We see more and more people turned in on themselves, lonely and estranged, even when they're part of a big crowd. You jump on a bus, you go on the packed train from Denmark Hill to Victoria maybe at uh, 8.43 in the morning, whatever time it departs, and the place is packed with people, and they are, they're not complaining, but their faces are blank. They're turned in on themselves. They're gazing at their screens, but they are, as it were, plugged into themselves. Where is the society? Where is the friendliness? Where is the warmth? Where is the joy and the color that maybe once was here? Why do these things depart from a people? Well, it can all be traced ultimately to the loss of the knowledge of God, to the loss of the light of God, the truth of God. Happiness. Think of these blessings that we all love. Happiness, joy, community, friendship, peace, meaning, purpose, beauty. We love these things. Everyone loves these things. And people think they can manufacture these things by themselves without reference to God the Creator. But we can't. We can't do that. Without reference to God, these blessings will never last. They will gradually ebb away until we eventually, eventually decline to the kind of darkness that we see illustrated here. The darkness that is a kind of shroud over this whole passage at first. And then we come to a second point. We see now a picture of destruction. And now we're introduced to the man who lives in this dark land. And a man he is. But he is a pitiful wreck of a man. He's a man who has been destroyed. He is called, first of all, in chapter 5 and verse 2, a man with an unclean spirit. But then we go on to learn something more about him. He's not possessed with merely an unclean spirit. He is possessed by a legion of demons. A legion of demons. Now, what does that mean? When I was a young lad of about 9 or 10, I had to do classics lessons at school learning about the, uh, the Greek and the Roman classics in preparation for learning Latin a bit later on. I remember learning about Roman soldiers. You had a Roman century, which was actually not 100 men, but 80 men. And then you had, I think, 8 or 10 centuries making up a cohort of soldiers. And then something like 6 or 8 cohorts making up a whole legion of soldiers. A legion of soldiers was something in the order of five or 6,000 Roman soldiers soldiers. And here is this man, we understand, possessed by several thousand demons. What does that mean? It means that he is completely dominated and controlled by the power of Satan. Who is Satan? I need to tell you these things, all of you, children too. Who is Satan? He is the head of all the forces of demons and the forces of evil and the unclean spirits. And we must say a little bit more about the demons this morning. They feature in this passage, they feature a great deal, don't they? Particularly in Matthew and Mark and Luke's Gospels. Who are these demons? Demons are evil, invisible spirits. Demons are fallen angels. 
Demons are these powerful beings who are opposed to God and opposed to everything good. And demons have the power and are shown to have the power here to possess an individual human being or indeed animals as we see later on. And they can strike these human beings, these demons. They can strike them with blindness, with dumbness, with epilepsy, or as in this case, with insanity. And we see many examples of demon possession and the symptoms of that in these Gospels. And particularly here, notice this. Demons are able to take over the whole faculty of a human being to control a man's speech. When Jesus says to this man in verse 9, what is your name? And the man replies and says, my name is Legion. He was not given the name Legion by his mum and dad when he was born, if he had a, a dad at the time and a mum who gave him a name. No, that is not his name. Legion is the demons in their thousands speaking through this man, taking full control over his mind and his speech. And then notice in verse 5 particularly how afflicted this man is. You know, of all the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Mark is the shortest, isn't it? The shortest, swiftest, most dramatic. But Mark gives by far the longest account of this particular incident. Twenty whole verses compared to 14 from Luke and a mere seven from Matthew. And in verse 5, Mark adds this comment, night and day. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. His actions are the same, night and day. Night and day merge into each other in this dark place. There's no separation between night and day for this man. He cries out with loud cries, maybe loud, inhuman, superhuman, unearthly cries. We see in verse 4, this man is possessed of unnatural strength. He wrenches his chains apart, his iron chains. He breaks his shackles in pieces. He is a figure from some horror story that we can barely imagine, but he's real. And he cuts his own body with stones. We talk today, don't we, about self-harming. We talk about mental illness, psychosis, paranoia, schizophrenia. This man has all of these conditions to the utmost degree. But this man isn't just simply mentally ill. He's not someone you could send round to the Maudsley for a bit of counselling or CBT or even advanced medication or even electric shock therapy to make him better. None of this will work on him. This man is possessed by a legion of demons. They are destroying this man. They have this man under lock and key, the lock and key ultimately of Satan, it seems. Satan is in charge of this man. I don't want to go too much further on this. This is a difficult subject, isn't it, to go on about. What can we say briefly about demon possession today? How widespread might demon possession be? I want to tread with extreme caution here this morning. I know that some of you here have witnessed genuine cases of demon possession. 
I cannot say with any certainty that I know that I have. Some of you who have come from African backgrounds, maybe Caribbean backgrounds in some cases, may know more about this at first hand than I and many here ever, ever have. There may be a lot more demon possession around than many of us perhaps realize. But I want to draw a bigger application than that this morning. Because you might be saying this morning, of course, this is a completely extreme and outlandish and unlikely scenario. Of course, nothing like this ever happens anywhere. And people around us here in Camberwell now are not remotely like this man, are they, at all, in any way. How glad we are that we haven't got this sort of thing going on around us. How hard that would be. Well, let me tell you this, brothers and sisters and friends. Whether or not people are actually demon-possessed, we can be quite sure of this. The same devil, Satan, holds the whole human race in his iron grip of dark and destructive slavery unless and until Jesus Christ, the light of the world, comes to save them and to heal them. Forget the demons for a moment, but there is a head of the demons, and he is called in the Bible the God of this world, with a small g, and the prince of the power of the air, and the apostle John, who was right here on this day, wrote at the end of his first letter something that divides the whole human race into two and only two camps, and it's this. He says to his fellow believers, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. No one's got one foot in or one foot out. No one's in no man's land. No one's kind of roughly there or there or thereabouts. You're either, you're either there or you're there. There's light and darkness. There's Jesus and Satan. There's truth and falsehood. There's heaven and hell. There's holiness and there's evil. And there's nothing in between. Not ultimately. And let me put it to you like this. If you are without Christ right now, if you are not a Christian if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are not following Christ as a disciple who says from the heart, I, <coughs> I follow him, I know him, I love him, then you are in the grip of the evil one. <coughs> Your mind is as enslaved as is the man in this passage who is just an extreme illustration of the slavery <coughs> and the insanity which affects the entire human race in their sin and rebellion against God. I'm saying, I'll say it again, this man here for all his violent symptoms is only the extreme tip of the human race in its rebellion, in its unbelief, in the slavery in which it is held under the power of Satan. I'm not only talking this morning about the criminally insane. 
I'm not only talking this morning about terrorists. I'm not only talking this morning about dictators. I don't have in mind only those people whose minds are seriously imbalanced in the grip of a particular kind of delusion. I'm not thinking this morning only about those who would say, and this is an evil thing to say, we need to teach five-year-old children that there are over a hundred different genders and they can be whatever they choose to be. And I'm saying that is evil, but it's not the only evil. What else am I saying this morning? I picked this up just yesterday. Earth Wisdom Tenders Declaration. Extinction Rebellion. What does it say here? For all the Extinction Rebellion rebels whose faith, beliefs, and spiritual practices are rooted in ancient or new earth wisdom. We are called the earth wisdom tenders, tending to all life on earth and our troubled time. We are earth wisdom tenders, when all sentient beings are our sisters and brothers, when we remember that we belong to the living web of life, when we know that our earth talks Our earth talks through us of her deep knowledge and wisdom. My friends, this is new paganism. This is paganism. This is Satan. This is evil. I don't mean that we shouldn't care about greenhouse gas emissions. I don't mean that we shouldn't look after our world. I don't mean that we shouldn't be very concerned about it, but when we start having the language of the earth being a god, and when we talk about the wisdom of the earth, and when the word of God is shut out, this is darkness. But let me say this to you also this morning. You may have nothing to do with this. You may say, yes, I find these Extinction Rebellion people very annoying. They get in the way. I can't get to work. I'm all right then, aren't I? Well, maybe you are, but maybe you're not all right. Are you a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have your eyes been opened to see that you're a sinner in need of his grace? If you say, no, not me, I don't need Jesus, I'm a good person, I'm fine, I'm all right, I'm carrying on with my life, I don't need church, don't need religion, don't need the Bible, don't need God, don't need Jesus, but I just live my own life, but I don't think these people, Extinction Rebellion people are right. No, but you are still in darkness, my friend. Satan, the God of the world, says Paul the Apostle, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And if you do not, with your own inner eyes, see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, you are under the thumb of the God of this world, who is Satan. And you need to be delivered. But there is a deliverer. And that is my third point. Deliverance, deliverer. And that's Jesus Christ and him alone. And we come now to the climax of the passage, to the glory of the passage, to what you and I need to hear this morning. Notice in verses 6 and 7, the immediate reaction of this man to Jesus. It's strange, isn't it, you might think. He sees him, and he runs and he falls down before him, and he cries out to him. 
What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And we think, well, what's he saying that for? Well, remember, it's not the man himself who is speaking. It's the legion of demons inside him who are speaking. They're crying out in terror. They recognize who Jesus is. They know that he is the Son of God. They know that he is their creator. They know that he is their judge. They are terrified that now, today, is that final day of judgment for them, and they will be judged with everlasting destruction. They know that the breath of Jesus is enough to slay them all in an instant, and that's why they beg not to be sent out of that dark land, but to stay there, stay in the pigs. They can stay where they are under the cover of darkness, you see. And then see what happens. Briefly, I mustn't take long over this, but Jesus casts these demons out of this man. And in case you're thinking legion is a bit of an exaggeration, maybe he's got about three or four demons. No, this legion of demons exits with the permission of the Son of God. And they fill 2,000 pigs feeding on the hillside in that Gentile place. And then you see this terrifying rush and stampede and noise as these demon-possessed pigs hurtle down, lemming-like, down this slope into the dark waters of the Sea of Galilee and are drowned. The violence of it all. The power of the Son of God to do this, though. Oh, look at Jesus now. Look at him. What's he done? He's done something very wonderful today. Because the real picture we must see now is not a dark picture at all. It's a very different picture. We now come back to this man. And there's a little crowd of people around this man. And the disciples are there. And Jesus is there. And he's sat there. And what does Mark say about him? There he is, clothed, and in his right mind. What a beautiful picture. What's Jesus done? I told you at the beginning this is a roller coaster reading, isn't it? As if the previous chapter hadn't been enough. At the end of it, Jesus asleep in a boat with his disciples. A great storm, the wind and the waves. And in an instant, Jesus saying to the wind and the waves and the hurricane and the typhoon and the tsunami, whatever was there, be still, peace. And there was a great calm. There was noise, there was the roar of waves, there was the shriek of the disciples, there was the clapping of thunder. There was the lightning flashing around them. It was terrifying. They were at their wit's end. And then Jesus says, peace, be still. And immediately, there's a great calm there. And the disciples are awestruck. And they say, who then is this? Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. But don't you think, friends, that what then happens in this next passage that we've just been looking at is even more amazing than that? I suppose it's one thing to cast out wind and seas, wind and waves from the sea, but there's another thing now in that Jesus casts out thousands of demons from a man who had been utterly dominated by them. 
a man made in God's image, but in whom that beautiful image had been hideously defaced, is now in a state of his own great calm. He's the same man. He's got the same face. He's got the same hands, the same feet. He's the same height he was before. He's the same man, but oh, how different he is. He's no longer rushing around wildly. He's no longer under the control of a frenzy. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus, like Mary, the sister of Martha, did. And he's clothed. Before this, we read in Luke's account, he was naked. You see, all human dignity and decency had departed from him. He went around with no clothes on all the time. That's what, that's what happens, you see, when, when a people start to fall away from God's standards and God's truth. And when God's light and knowledge departs, people start to remove their clothes. And they start to celebrate nakedness and the sin that goes with it. And uh, this is a, an aside, but you see, now what happens to this man is that he is clothed, but he is in his right mind. That's it. And in my imagination, don't know about yours, but in my imagination, the sun's now come out. And it's shining on this man's face. And his face is calm, controlled, alert, composed, poised, sober, but full of light and joy. The wild, contorted, hideous look that had occupied him before has gone from his face forever. He is in his right mind. He's been delivered from the dominion of darkness, delivered by Jesus, and delivered to Jesus. The disciples may well have said what they had said before with a slight change. Who then is this that even the demons and the devil obey him? And John again tells us this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. A man in the vicious clutches, in that throat-held clasp of Satan, who was Satan's slave and puppet and robot, has been changed and released and liberated instantly into a bright and shining witness to God and to Jesus Christ, who alone delivers men and women from darkness to light. Jesus destroys the devil and his work, but he doesn't destroy people. No, he comes to save people. He comes to rescue people from the power of the devil. Is anything too hard for the Lord. Here's a picture of what the Lord Jesus does, not only in extreme cases like this, but in every case when he visits a man or a woman or a child who is outside of him and he comes with his salvation. Clothed and in his right mind, 
Jesus Christ executes a deliverance which is complete and entire and permanent. Permanent, full, nothing lacking. Nobody in that land of the Gerasenes had ever been able to control that demon-possessed man, subdue that man, let alone help that man, change that man, rescue that man. They'd given up on him long years ago. And in this fifth chapter of Mark, we meet with other people who had given up. They'd given up. The woman with the flow of blood for 12 years had given up. Jairus' companions who come to Jesus with Jairus' daughter, 12-year-old daughter, dead, have given up. They've given up hope. But with Jesus Christ alone, there is always hope, full hope, hope of complete and eternal deliverance. We read in Psalm 68 and verse 20, Our God is a God of salvation. And to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. This man who was once possessed by a legion of demons was like a man who was dead, wasn't he? Like a man who was worse than dead. But now he's undergone a kind of resurrection. He's alive. He's new. Satan's been banished. He's been saved. He's been delivered. He's a new man, and so can you be, and so can I be, if we have faith in Jesus. That's the gospel. Jesus, who comes to destroy the works of the devil and restore you and me, any of you, to faith in Jesus Christ. I want to just finish, however, with a very brief postscript that this narrative provides. Isn't the ending interesting? Notice the last part of verse 15. That these people of the country, they see this man clothed in his right mind. You might think, well, would it go on and say, and they were overjoyed, and they were amazed, and they marveled, and they jumped up and down saying, hallelujah. But they didn't do that, did they? Do you notice what they did? They were afraid. Why? Why weren't they bringing their own sick and demon-possessed in the crowds to Jesus as they did in Israel. Why weren't they doing that? Why did they go on to beg Jesus to depart from their region? Well, here is the answer. That though they were not as demon-possessed as this man had been, their minds and souls were still darkened and unbelieving, and they did not want to believe or receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. Even an astonishing miracle of this kind did not make them believe. And I'll apply it this way. The same gospel of Jesus Christ is preached here and in many other churches Sunday by Sunday. But the great masses outside are afraid. They won't come in. They won't come to the light. They fear the light. They hate the light. They beg Jesus and his message to go away from them. You talk to respectable people, respectable people, polite people, well-to-do people, and you tell them gently, calmly, politely. You don't preach at them. You don't shout at them. You, you tell them about Jesus. And do they want to know? Do they, are they interested? No, they're not. They shut the door in your face. They change the subject. That's so here anyway. 
It's probably different in other places. Praise God that it is. What about this man himself? He wanted to jump into the boat and go back to Galilee with Jesus and his disciples. Didn't he? Do you see the repetition of begging and permitting at the end of the passage? But Jesus says to him, Go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. We might say then, in conclusion, this remarkable man became the first Christian missionary. The first man sent by Jesus to go to a people and tell his own people what Jesus had done. What a testimony. What a story. What an amazing account he had. But brothers and sisters, if, it's your, if you're a Christian, it's your story too, isn't it? I once was blind. I once was lost. I once was mad. I once was a slave. I once was controlled by a power that was not the power of God. But Jesus came to me and he found me and he opened my eyes and he gave me life. And now in a love which cannot cease, I am his and he is mine. And Jesus, in the same way as he did that day, says to you and me this morning, wherever we are, go and tell how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. And none but Jesus. None but Jesus. Only Jesus. The word of Christ. The gospel of Jesus in the power of the spirit. The message of Jesus Christ incarnate crucified, resurrected, raiding on high, coming again, the message of Jesus alone can change and save and deliver us and deliver those outside from the dominion of Satan and of darkness to light, to glory, to salvation. We'll pray together. Gracious Lord God, mighty Savior, we would, as it were, stand before that scene that we have just been considering from beginning to end. We have seen and felt the darkness and the oppression and the evil, but, O oh Lord, we see now the lights, the salvation, the peace, the joy. We see Jesus Christ, who alone is Savior, delivering this man from such darkness. And, O oh Lord, we are in darkness too without Christ until the day comes when our chains are broken and our eyes are opened and our own minds, O oh Lord, are made clear and right. O oh Lord, our God, we pray that you would work in all our minds, O oh Lord God, 
But if any mind here today is a mind still darkened to the truth of Jesus Christ alone, that your gospel would bring that mind to its right senses even now, Lord God. Do a great work of salvation and deliverance here in this place. Today, whenever we gather, and through all of us as we witness to you throughout our lives, we ask all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen.